Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History for a special supplementary episode on the third decade of the VFL, covering 1917 to 1926. These supplementary reviews of the decade provide a chance to have a look at the trends and events over time. It's a quick way of gaining an overview of the previous 10 years, maybe saving you from having to listen to all those episodes. But it's also an opportunity to see how the VFL developed in its third decade, from a time of war with only six clubs in 1917, to a prosperous, growing 12-team competition in 1926. I'll break this episode up into some themes to look at the trends that emerged over the decade, rather than just listing the premiers of each season. But we will get to the list of successful teams as well. First, let's have a look at some of the big global trends of the decade that set the stage for supporters, players and administrators of VFL footy in Melbourne, Australia. The key issue in 1917 was the First World War, which had started in 1914 and, we know now, will end in 1918. But for the people in 1917, it would have seemed an all-consuming juggernaut with no obvious end in sight. 750 VFL players served in World War I and 94 died on active service, an equivalent of five teams. Several players would return to their clubs to lead them into grand finals. A few examples include Gordon Rattray at Fitzroy, Dan Minogue at Richmond, Melbourne's Albert Chadwick and Geelong's Cliff Rankin. Some of the big issues from this time that will play out in the years and decades ahead include the consolidation of the Russian Revolution of 1915, which saw the Communist Party under Lenin and then Stalin establish the Soviet Union. In Italy, Benito Mussolini took control with his fascist party with the March on Rome in 1922, and hyperinflation in Germany saw a loaf of bread that cost about 160 marks in 1922 increased to 200 billion marks by late 1923, which caused considerable instability and a man called Adolf Hitler attempted to seize power via a failed coup in Munich in 1923. Sadly, he will be back. The end of the First World War brought both disruption and advances. There were huge labour strikes in Australia and the United Kingdom as labour, business and government sought influence. Technological advances from the war saw the emergence of broadcast radio and the growth of airplane flight, and also demonstrations of early television systems. Perhaps one of the biggest impacts that we can relate to was the spread of Spanish flu as troops returned home in 1919, a global pandemic that saw lockdowns, mask recommendations, pubs and theatres shut, and emergency temporary hospitals. About 40% of the population got ill and 15,000 people died, with the virus targeting young adults rather than elderly or infants. No current VFL players died, but some club administrators and former players did succumb to the illness. And you won't be surprised to hear that there were disputes between the states and the federal government, and some states closed their borders. And while we're talking about illness, just before we get to the footy, a sombre point to show the change in medical standards and resources that we can access that were not available to the people of the third decade of the VFL. Two players died in this 10 years. In July 1921, 
Lyle Downs, an outstanding rover for Carlton, collapsed after training with a heart attack. He'd been warned by doctors that he had a heart condition, but continued to play the game he loved. Perhaps, in the modern era, a pacemaker or some other treatment would have made a difference. Carlton lost another player in August 1926. Les Witto, aged 23, was playing his sixth game for the Blues and broke his arm. Sadly, he developed tetanus and died less than two weeks later. Antibiotics like penicillin were not available until the 1940s and tetanus vaccinations were not common until the 1950s. This period also saw, amongst others, the death of Charles Brownlow, the Geelong administrator who had been pivotal in the management of the VFL, and the Prince of Umpires, Ivo Krapp, who had umpired seven grand finals in the first two decades of the league. But let's focus on the footy, and we'll start with the growth of the VFL. In 1917, there were only six teams playing. Fitzroy, Richmond, Collingwood and Carlton had kept playing throughout the war, resulting in the unusual four-team 1916 season the year before. 1917 saw the return of Geelong. One motivation was a fear that the club would be dropped from the VFL if it did not commence playing. And South Melbourne also rejoined. Then 1918 saw Essendon and St Kilda resume competing and Melbourne waited until the war had ended. Their first season back was 1919 where they lost every game and saw only one player, Charles Lilly, return from the 1915 side that had narrowly lost the semi-final. This meant a nine-team competition, with four games every Saturday, and the team with the bye would often travel to regional Victoria or interstate for exhibition games and a bit of a holiday for the players. But the pressure grew to add an additional club to create a ten-team competition to eliminate the bye. Many called, but year after year the decision was deferred. VFA clubs were officially banned by the VFA from applying to join the VFL. But fortunately, many local councils who just happened to have a VFA club in their territory did apply to the league, and there surely would have been no communication nor any collusion between the clubs and the councils applying to the VFL. While Footscray and North Melbourne were the two strongest sides in the VFA and the most obvious candidates, the papers reported discussions with Brunswick, Camberwell, Caulfield, Paran, Hawthorne, Williamstown, and even a public service team. One challenge was an agreement between the VFL and the VFA requiring players to get a clearance to swap clubs. This was agreed to by the VFL to reduce the bidding war for players that had seen the cost of player payments increasing each season to hold on to star players. In 1925, the VFL finally made the plunge and declared three clubs would be joining the league. Footscray, North Melbourne and Hawthorne. Two strong clubs and Hawthorne, who had a strategic position in the eastern suburbs and a ground at Glenferry Oval, which, according to the standards at the time, provided superior facilities. Given the clubs were now with the VFL, the players would not need a clearance from the VFA. A point that was not agreed to by an unhappy VFA. So why three clubs and not one to make a 10-team competition? The Argus published a piece that detailed the ruthless logic 
applied by Carlton Secretary and Delegate to the League. Taking one club into the VFL would upset district zones and encourage a bidding war from the VFA clubs to recruit VFL players, increasing the cost for VFL clubs. But if the league took three strong VFA teams out of that competition, the remaining VFA clubs would be weakened with less games and less revenue, hence unable to bid high amounts for VFL players. The VFL would be stronger, there would be more time to resolve the district scheme, there would be no bidding war for players from the VFA, and from a VFL perspective, all would be fine. And that's pretty much how it played out. The VFA threatened legal action, but nothing came of it. The VFA would recruit more clubs and survive. And the three teams that moved to the VFL and their supporters were happy, even if the results for many years were not great. So the only people that really paid a penalty were the fringe players for the three former VFA clubs. As they were cut loose after a season or two, they found themselves banned from the VFA for three years and unable to get a game with the other VFL clubs. They were left to their own devices, the innocent victims of a feud between the VFA and the VFL. And the VFL's popularity grew and grew. While crowd numbers were down during wartime, as the 1920s progressed, the attendances just kept getting bigger. Data for the home and away season before the 1920s is a bit of a challenge, but thanks to the wonderful afltables.com site, we can see that 1921's attendance of 1,175,000 grew to 1,763,000 in 1926, a 50% increase in five years, obviously helped by three extra teams joining in 1925. Grand final attendances also grew dramatically. In 1917, during the war, which obviously reduced numbers, there was only 28,000 people at the grand final. In 1926, the 30th season of the VFL, 60,000 people crowded into the MCG, which had been upgraded with a new stand. And all of this was happening when Melbourne's population had not yet exceeded 950,000. Football, and VFL football in particular, had grabbed the city's interest like no other sport. There were changes to grounds, proposed changes to grounds and improvements in facilities to help cope with this increased popularity, and also because of the changing infrastructure in Melbourne. The biggest change was Essendon having to leave its home ground, the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, after 1921, when this land was to be reclaimed as part of the Jollymont Rail Yards. The whole thing turned into a bit of a saga. One option was sharing Victoria Park with Collingwood. Fascinating to imagine how these two clubs might have developed over the years if they shared the same ground. Another plan was to go to Camberwell, but the real drama was the proposed move to Arden Street, which North Melbourne supported, as they saw an opportunity to do a reverse takeover of Essendon, and this was a path for North Melbourne to join the VFL. North even dropped out of the VFA halfway through the season as part of this plan. But the VFA got ahead of that option by getting the state government to bar Essendon from Arden Street. So Essendon did move to Windy Hill in Essendon, which meant that the Essendon VFA club decided to merge with the re-established North Melbourne back in the VFA. All very confusing, 
but the move was a successful one for Essendon, and they would play there until 1991, when they moved to the MCG, just a drop kick or two from the old East Melbourne cricket ground, which is now buried under apartments. Collingwood had a short scare when the VFL threatened to ban the use of Victoria Park for the 1924 season. It was to do with aligning membership fees with cricket clubs, so no individual cricket club member got an advantage. The Collingwood Cricket Club had held out for a time, but the threat of action by the VFL drove a resolution. But again, we can only imagine what would have happened to Collingwood if they did not have Victoria Park for all those decades of the 20th century. Facilities were also being improved. In 1921, Geelong took the big decision to install hot water for their club rooms. It's not clear if this was made available to visiting teams. The football record installed new scoreboards at each ground so supporters could track the scores at other grounds, but only if you bought the football record, so you could tell which team was marked A or B or C, etc. on the scoreboard. New stands and terracing upgrades were installed at several grounds to better handle the crowds. This included the open concrete stand at the MCG in 1926. And then there were the more ambitious proposals that were many decades ahead of their time. In 1920, there was a suggestion that the league take full control of two grounds and play two double-headers each Saturday to complete the required four games. This would mean revenue raised would go to the clubs in the league and not the cricket clubs that had control of most grounds. One of the potential grounds was the disused velodrome at the Exhibition Gardens, which would have been great for the VFL, but was not a popular option with local residents. An even more ambitious plot was developed in 1925. A private company with links to colourful racing identity, John Wren, took control of the Motordome, which would eventually become Olympic Park and is now used as Amy Stadium, home of the Melbourne Storm and Victory or the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, if you're listening on the ABC. This was prime sporting real estate, and the VFL was keen to stop the VFA or any other sports from establishing themselves so close to the MCG. There was serious talk of two privately run VFA teams, representing Melbourne and Richmond, playing at the Motordome with night games on Saturdays and Mondays. This came to nothing, but it was innovative thinking many decades ahead of its time. There were some interesting rule changes to the game during this third decade. 1918 saw the end of the steward system, an extra official that could go onto the ground and report players, but not officiate the game. The role had been introduced in 1912 to reduce violence. It was felt that the umpires were too busy watching the game to pick up all the reportable offences. Years later, We have video scrutiny for reporting players, but back then, stewards were the plan. But the players ended up more frustrated. Stewards obstructed the play, and some did not seem to even know the rules. There was a story that one of the early candidates applied, and when he showed no knowledge of the game, he admitted that he thought it was a position for a barman, a steward, to serve drinks. The big change was in 1925, when the out-of-bounds rule was changed to provide a free kick against the player that had put the ball out of bounds. The VFL was strongly opposed to this change, but they were constrained by the fact that they had helped set up the Australian Football Council 
as the sole provider of the rules of the game, to drive consistency for all leagues across the country. But despite the fear that it would make the game unattractive, it actually worked to increase scoring by forcing play away from the boundary lines into what we would call the centre corridor. And it also eliminated the ugly shepherding and elbowing that had become a feature when boundary umpires were throwing the ball in. While on the topic of scoring, this was a decade that saw significant improvement in average scores and goal kickers. During the second decade of the VFL, the average score for each game was in the low 60-point range. In the third decade, excluding the struggling new VFA clubs, it was up around 75 points per game. And goal kickers were setting new records too. In 1917, Collingwood's Dick Lee led the competition, kicking 54 goals for the season. By 1924, Fitzroy's Jack Moriarty kicked 82 goals, and Essendon were wondering why they had cleared him. In 1926, Collingwood's Gordon Coventry had the first of many seasons leading the goal kicking with a new record 83 goals. Though not everyone was happy with the higher scoring, faster game. In 1924, Jack Worrell, a five-time premiership coach of Carlton and Essendon, wrote that the game was too fast and there were too many mistakes being made. A sentiment that I'm sure we will find repeated in every decade of the VFL or AFL. Responding to the growth of popularity, and also helping to drive the popularity, was the media in Melbourne. While this was still dominated by newspapers, the decade saw the emergence of broadcast radio in Australia, and in 1925 there was the first radio broadcast of the VFL games, with the preliminary final and the grand final broadcast on radio from the MCG. But live radio broadcasts of grand finals did not become regular until after the Second World War. Radio listeners might reduce the crowd numbers, was the thinking of the MCG trusts back in the day. Two new newspapers debuted in this decade that helped push many football careers. The Sporting Globe on a Saturday night and Wednesday afternoon, and the Sun News Pictorial. To demonstrate the growth in press coverage, I've done some analysis on the number of football articles that come up when I search the National Library's wonderful Trove site for each episode of the podcast. In 1917, during the First World War, there were just 512 football articles in the main Victorian newspapers that I track. By 1926, using the same search criteria, there were over 2,800 articles a 450% increase over a decade, which demonstrates the public's never-ending appetite for football news over that decade. There were other ways to spread the news about football results. In 1920 and 21, when Richmond was playing in the grand final, the local council arranged to fly a Richmond flag from a flagpole on the top of the town hall as soon as they knew the Tigers were premiers. Local residents who were not at the game could look to the flagpole to get the good news. In 1923, an even more exciting method was unveiled. The Herald had a plane flying over Melbourne, and when Essendon won the grand final, a red flag was unfurled from the Herald and Weekly Times building. The pilot of the Herald plane saw the signal and flew to the Caulfield race course, crowded with Caulfield Cup spectators. The pilot shot off red flares, signifying Essendon's victory, 
and then proceeded to fly over other suburbs, shooting more flares to share the good news for Don supporters. A tradition begging for revival, some might say. The Brownlow Medal was introduced in 1924 to honour veteran administrator Charles Brownlow. Though designated as being for the fairest and best player, most press reports of the time called it the Best and Fairest Award, and this tradition is usually followed by someone in the media each year. There was also criticism of the voting system, with numerous commentators pointing out that umpires had too much to do already and were not the best people to be voting for the award. Another fine tradition that continues to the modern times. Initially, there was only one vote per game by the one-field umpire. The inaugural winner was Kaji Greaves of Geelong, who was then the runner-up in 1925 and 26, when the award was won by St Kilda's Colin Watson and Melbourne's Ivor Warren Smith. The first three Brownlow medal winners often played in the centre, but it's not as if the midfielders are going to end up dominating the Brownlow, is it? For most of this third decade, the finals were played using the amended Argus system. The team that finished first after the home and away season had the right of challenge. Effectively, a second chance if they were beaten. The first semi-final was between second and fourth, and the second semi-final the following week between first and third. The winners playing off in the final. If the top of the ladder team lost their semi, they would have a rest and take on the winner of what was effectively the preliminary final in the grand final. If the top of the ladder team won their semi but lost the final, then there would be a repeat the following week. That's right, a grand final. Two problems with this system. You never knew how many weeks the final series was going to take. And with only one game each week at the MCG, the crowds became very large and hard to fit into the ground. In fact, the only year without a grand final in this third decade using the amended Arca system was in 1918 when top of the ladder South Melbourne won both their second semi-final and the final to take the premiership. So, were top of the table teams losing a final each year to get more money by playing an extra game? Of course not, said the VFL. But, maybe, said many supporters and rumour spreaders. To manage the crowd, the VFL did try putting up the price of finals in 1921. But this just upset people and crowds dropped significantly, which led to less overall revenue. Unhappy supporters and less revenue? The league knew that that was not a good solution. So prices went back to normal in 1922. The next attempt to fix the problem was in 1924, where there was no grand final, and, instead, just as in 1897, the first year of the VFL, the top four teams played a round robin, two games each week to spread the crowds out. The top of the table, Essendon, still had the right of challenge if they needed it after three weeks of a round robin, which means the uncertain length of the final series still wasn't resolved. At the start of the season, when the system was unveiled, the media were supportive. At the delegates' meeting, only St Kilda voted against the change. But, once the round-robin finals began, it revealed a series of problems that put people off. Scheduling games was a nightmare. The league had booked different grounds to pair with the MCG each week. But, it would not be fair to schedule a final with a club having a home ground advantage. But that meant some teams would not get to play any finals at the MCG. And after two weeks, it was clear Essendon was going to win the Premiership, even if they lost to Richmond, which they did. 
So Essendon have the unusual honour of being the only club to lose the last game it played in the finals, but also being the Premiers. The round robin was dismissed, and it was back to the amended Argus system in 1925, even if that met a crowded MCG. There was one more change in 1926. Members of the competing clubs had been able to enter a finals match by showing their membership ticket, a real value-add to your membership if your team was in the finals. But from 1926, everyone had to pay to attend. Everybody, except Melbourne Cricket Club members, who still had the privilege of hosting finals at their MCG. It is an issue that will become a point of stress between the Melbourne Cricket Club and the VFL in the decades ahead. There was always a scandal or two each season, and gambling was seen to be at the core of most of them. In 1922, the VFL Secretary, Mr Wilson, made a very clear statement that the league did not condone gambling in any way, shape, or form. Not sure the current league administrators would say the same thing, given all the sponsorship from gambling companies. The VFA had a huge scandal after their 1922 grand final, won by Port Melbourne against the favourites Footscray. Several Port Melbourne players reported being approached by Footscray identities with cash offers to play dead in the grand final. Apparently, some big money was bet on the game and Footscray's form had dropped off. After much investigation, one ex-Footscray player, Vern Banbury, was banned for life. Oddly, Banbury was made a life member by the club in 1923 and inducted into the Western Bulldogs Hall of Fame in 2010. Footscray also feature in the other big scandal of the decade, along with Essendon in the infamous round-robin final series of 1924. As we said earlier, Essendon basically had the premiership locked up after just two weeks of the round robin and then lost, in possibly curious circumstances, their final game against Richmond. Despite winning the premiership, there were reports of fistfights between teammates after the game and later at the post-match celebrations. Then there was the special game to raise funds for injured soldiers between the VFA Premiers, Footscray, and the VFL Premiers, Essendon. Footscray were looking to show their credentials as a team worthy of being included in the VFL. Essendon had everything to lose and nothing to win. They were expected to be the superior team from the superior competition. But in front of 46,000 people at the MCG, a bigger crowd than any of the VFL round robin finals, it was Footscray who were the easy winners to be state champions, more anger in the Essendon rooms. Ruckman, Tom Fitzmaurice, said he would never play for the club again. Years later, he and another player, Charlie Hardy, said that players had been paid to lose the last final against Richmond and the match against Footscray. Denials from the other Essendon players and Footscray officials and an end of season that has been surrounded by rumour and debate ever since. On a more positive note, the third decade of the VFL was also a time of progress and innovation. Some initiatives had become established, and there were others that were left behind. There were the first VFL games played in the morning in 1920, to allow time for the crowd to move to the welcoming parade for the Prince of Wales, who was arriving in Melbourne on a May Saturday afternoon. 
Not sure if the AFL will look to bring back morning games, but if the TV broadcasters thought it would work, you never know. Fitzroy were the first VFL club to travel to Perth. An epic journey by train in 1922, playing exhibition games at a time where the Maroons were the innovative powerhouse of the VFL. Ironically, they played their last game as a standalone club in Perth in 1996, before they merged with Brisbane. The first well-publicised women's football games were played in 1921. These were well attended, and the participants were enthusiastic, even if there was pressure from some not to play. A group of women from the Defence Department were told they would be dismissed if they played. Fortunately, after many years of effort by dedicated supporters of the women's game, it is now well established in the modern era. Geelong and Richmond adopted their symbols of cats and tigers respectively, while other clubs would still take time to adopt their modern symbols. Would Hawthorne have developed into the successful club of the modern era if they had retained their Maybloons nickname? And Melbourne is unlikely to return to the Fuchsias as they were known in the 1920s. One proposal that did not eventuate this decade, but would come true about 40 years later, was the suggestion that an Australian team be selected to play an Irish Gaelic football team that was going to tour America. The game could be played in San Francisco, suggested the Table Talk newspaper in August 1926, recognising the similarity of the Australian and Gaelic games. It did not happen then, but tours were organised in the 1960s and 70s, and official international games started in the 1980s. So full points to spotting the opportunity 40 years or more ahead of their time. The VFL administration changed shape during this 10-year period. Oliver Williams had taken on the presidency in 1915, but resigned in 1917 when there were disputes about the amount of money raised by clubs for wartime patriotic funds. He was also on the War Funds Committee and other committees to support the war effort, and this outrage related to the VFL club's contributions, led to his resignation. Charles Brownlow took on the presidency in an acting commission until the end of the war, with Walter Spencer, an academic and university lecturer, taking over from 1919 to 1926. William McClelland, a doctor and former Melbourne Premiership player from their 1900 team, began his long reign as president in 1926. We will see more of him in episodes to come. And all this time, the day-to-day administration of the league was the responsibility of their full-time employee and league secretary, Edwin Wilson. He had started in the role back in 1897 at the start of the league and was still going strong. In 1926, the league increased his wage and officially set aside budget for the appointment of an assistant secretary with the aim to have the VFL head office open full-time in normal business hours. The never-ending increase in the size of league administration and head office staff was underway. The third decade of the VFL also saw a few scoring records and other odd results. In 1920, St Kilda were having a dispute with many of their players and selected a team of youngsters and veterans. Harry Cumberland became the oldest person to play in the VFL aged 43. He had first played for Melbourne in 1898, the second year of the VFL, and then had a career that took him to New Zealand, St Kilda, South Australia, and enlistment in World War I, 
where he is wounded three times. In his first game back against Collingwood, at the end of the match, both teams gathered to give three cheers to the veteran. He would play ten games in his final season, aged 43, for just one win. The Saints were involved in some other odd games over this period. Round 5, 1919, they beat Geelong at the Correo Oval, with a score of 6 goals, 10 behinds. Not that unusual, but Geelong had 18 scoring shots across 4 quarters without kicking a single goal. No goals, 18 behinds, 18 points. A tough day for Geelong and their supporters. Then in 1918, South Melbourne had almost made it through the season undefeated, but lost against St Kilda in round 4, in a game played on the Monday, King's birthday holiday. It was revealed, nearly 50 years later, that a club patron had hosted the South Melbourne team in a holiday home in the Dandenongs, and that the open bar had taken something of a beating. The only sleep that some players got was on the train heading to the game on the Monday morning. They were not in great shape, and it was their only loss for the entire season, forfeiting unique bragging rights. The Saints also featured in their own display of horrendous kicking in 1921, round 11, against Fitzroy. The Maroons kicked six goals eight, similar to the Saints against Geelong in 1919, and the Saints did exactly the same as Geelong. 18 shots at goal for 18 behinds. Not a single kick through the middle. So, who were the successful teams in this period? In a sign of the evenness of the competition, seven different teams won the Premiership over the ten years, with Collingwood and Richmond and Essendon all winning twice, and single Premierships to South Melbourne, Fitzroy and Geelong. Though Collingwood, coached by Jock McHale, was clearly the dominant team, playing in six of the grand finals, finishing runners-up four times alongside their two premierships. They will still be a force in the coming decade. Richmond could claim to be the second best team over the decade, playing in four grand finals for two wins and two runners-up. But they missed out on the finals in the other years. Geelong's success meant that Foundation Club St Kilda and now former VFL Club University were the only teams not to have won a VFL Premiership. And while I have been able to use many football history books and online resources to learn about the early years of the VFL, there were people in the 1920s reporting on the history of Australian football. This was a time when one of the founders of the game, Henry Harrison, was still alive, so the history was still in living memory. In 1926, an article in the Argus described a game held 60 years ago, in 1866. They quoted a newspaper report at the time that described the challenge of the holding the ball rule, and the Argus noted that it was still causing trouble in 1926, and we know that it can still be a problem in today's modern game. Frank Worrell wrote in 1923 on his recollections of the last 40 years of football. He thought that the previous players were much better at long kicking than the current crop, and he was not at all impressed with the lack of historical records or data published by the league, a problem that some might still raise today. That brings us to the end of this review of the VFL's third decade, 1917 to 1926. I hope you've enjoyed the summary, and I will return to normal programming for the next episode. 
looking at 1927. Football and the citizens of Melbourne and surrounds had seen a good 10 years after the struggles of wartime in the Spanish flu, moving to a period of growth and relative prosperity. But the next 10 years are going to be tough for many. I hope you can join me as we look at each season in Grand Final History. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook and Twitter for more Grand Final History. History.